As one of the pastors here at Forest Hill Church, I want to welcome you, and I hope that your July 4th celebrations went well. I know that in the midst of these weird circumstances and in so much brokenness in our country, that there are still blessings which we can give God thanks for. So I'm glad that you're here as we get ready to finish up this series. Before that, I came across a story, I read it, and it's one of those things that when you see it, you're like, is there a video on this? Because I got to check this out. I saw a story of a man who is now, uh, as of 2016 July, the first human being to have jumped out of a plane at 25,000 feet without a wingsuit and without a parachute and landed safely. His name is Luke Aitken. Like I said, July in uh, 2016, this 42-year-old man jumped out of a plane at 25,000 feet. He approached a terminal velocity of 120 miles per hour, no wingsuit, no gliding, and no parachute, and landed on a net that is 100 foot by 100 foot safely. If I had not seen it, I would not have believed it. And I watched like for two minutes and 45 seconds, this free fall of this man without any aid whatsoever, landing safely to be reunited with his wife and his son, an amazing feat. The process, however, was is that he didn't just do that for the first time. He had like 18,000 jumps to his name. He had practiced for this particular jump about 1,000 times with a real parachute and learned how to be able to open the chute at the right moment, at the last moment, to be able to complete this amazing feat. Here's what he said about it. I wanted to show that when you approach a challenge the right way and you test it and prove that it's good to go, you can accomplish things you thought were impossible. My wife, I may, didn't agree with that. After she saw that, she said, I don't think, she said she didn't think she could be married to any man that would do that. And she said to me, don't you get any ideas? I said, sweetheart, as the spirit leads, you never know. Here's the thing, as it applies to faith. True, biblical, transforming faith is not taking a blind leap into nothing. It's actually taking an expensive risk based on sound truth and sound basis. That's the nature of the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people who have a different, difficult time actually adhering to the Christian faith. Tim Keller basically said that for many people, Christianity is like the most irritating religion on earth. Having a conversation with a person who kind of says that I would never ever believe, become a Christian, and Tim Keller says, why? It's because the guy says, there are things in the Bible that just offend me. The way that we believe, we like to read something and decide, I like that, I accept this, but this over here I don't like, I reject that. Tim Keller says to this man, are you saying that because there are certain things in the Bible that offend you, that Jesus Christ could not have been raised from the dead? But the man says, no, I'm not exactly saying that. Then Tim said, okay, suspend your moral ethical dilemma for just a moment, and here's the situation. If Jesus really rose from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the scripture since he affirmed that. Now, if Jesus really didn't raise from the dead, well, then you don't have to be upset about anything, no vexation whatsoever, because it's not true. But you'd be in good company with Paul because the apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he was offended by Jesus even to the point to where he was killing Christians until Paul came to realize that everything that Jesus said about himself was true and he was no longer offended because it's true. Here's the issue. The resurrection is the most paradigm-shattering historical event that we deal with. And this is how we're going to close our series. For the last 
16 weeks, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, taking a look at the writings of Mark as he's writing down the Peter's eyewitness account of who Jesus is in this trade-up series to take a look, what does dynamic life look like through the life of Jesus Christ that's being passed on to us? And the resurrection, here's the thing, folks, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of dynamic life. The resurrection is the foundation of dynamic life, and it's not simply just that event. It's the way that Jesus lived his life. It's how he addressed every dysfunction in the world, in society, and overcame it. And through the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, he passes on that resource to us for us to be able to live it out in a way that reflects his purpose. And so we're going to take a look at a particular passage, Mark chapter 16, as we bring this trade-up series to a close. Let me give you kind of a summary of what takes place in the first eight verses. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Salome, on Sunday morning early, this is after Jesus died on, was crucified on Friday, Easter Sunday morning, they get to the tomb really early, and they're thinking on their way, how are we going to move the huge stone that's in front of the tomb? Don't know if they understand about the Roman guards that are gathering, <laughs> that, that, that are guarding the tomb or the seal, but they go, and when they get to the tomb, they realize they had nothing to worry about because the stone is rolled away. They've got access to the tomb, and they go inside, and they find an angel, basically called a young man, sitting near where Jesus was laid. And this young man says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The women get that, get that news. They flee. The Bible says that they are seized, overwhelmed with trembling and this astonishment. They're filled with the terror of astonishment and amazement. And they leave the, the tomb so afraid they say nothing to no one. And that is where the earliest manuscripts end the story. As a matter of fact, in many of your Bibles, right after verse 8, you may actually have something that says the earliest manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20. Here's a reason why. The scripture, the way that it comes together, is the collection of copies of the original manuscripts. Copies. But that collection takes place over years and years. With better archaeology, better study, some of those copies continues to surface. At this particular point, so many of the earliest manuscripts did not have this particular part from 9 to 20, the appearances of Jesus, but they showed up in other manuscripts. And many believe that Mark did not complete verses 9 through 20, but that someone did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that's still consistent with what shows up in the other gospel writers. So we're going to take a look, seriously, at this particular passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Verses 1 through 8, they didn't have the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, but the announcement, but these verses will deal with three significant appearances of Jesus Christ. So... In the honor, in the reading of the word of God, and the resurrected one who authors it. May I ask you to stand, we'll take a look at this passage, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Here's what it says. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. 
And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, The Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And when they went out, and then they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Three appearances. The first one was with Mary Magdalene. We don't know an awful lot about Mary Magdalene other than the fact that somehow during the ministry of Jesus, probably early, Jesus had actually cast out seven demons out of her. As a result of that, she became a very faithful follower and supporter of Jesus Christ. And she, along with several women at his crucifixion, were able to, from a distance, be able to see what was happening in Jesus' excruciation and his death. And then they also were there when Jesus was laid in the tomb and knew where the tomb was. You'll go to the Gospel of John and you will encounter John's perspective or John's understanding of the encounter that Mary had at the tomb with the risen Jesus when she couldn't recognize him right away. But in that interchange, when she realizes who Jesus is and there's this embrace and there's this joy, Jesus sends her back to the disciples and she's running back to the disciples with joy and maybe a little bit of fear and uncertainty and she is proclaiming the first person to proclaim the message of the resurrection to these disciples, and she comes with joy. They're dealing with grief and mourning and wailing and sadness, and they do not believe her. In that particular day and time, a woman's woman's testimony was not even acceptable or trustworthy in a court of law, and yet Jesus Christ commissions her to be the first person to preach and to proclaim and announce this amazing news of his resurrection to his friends, and they do not believe her. That's number one. Number two talks about a group of disciples who were headed out of the country. They're heading to another village, another town, and you'll see this particular story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. These are the two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. However, before they left, They were actually in the room that morning with the disciples when the women had come by to say that Jesus was alive. As a matter of fact, in the first verses between 1 and 8, those women said that they said nothing. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, those women, as they left the tomb in fear, they encountered Jesus themselves, and then they ran back. So now you've got the women, you've got Mary, that had basically said, we've seen Jesus alive. But then those two guys, those two disciples, they left to go to Emmaus. As a matter of fact, many people believe that because we know the name of one of those disciples, his name was Clopas, they're surmising that the other person, because of a woman that was also the wife of Clopas, was the same person. So maybe it wasn't two men, but 
a husband and wife team that were traveling to Emmaus. And while they're there, they're having the conversation with great heavy hearts about what had happened with the crucifixion. And Jesus shows up in another form, unrecognizable to them, and says to them, what are you arguing about? This is in Luke. And they said, did you just crawl out from under a rock? You haven't seen and you've not heard about what's taking place in Jerusalem? And they go through the process of recounting all that had taken place with the death of their Messiah and the death of their dreams as well. And Jesus says to them, oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe the prophets. And then Jesus unpacks the Old Testament and helps them to understand why the Messiah had to suffer and who the Messiah really is. And their hearts were burning. They said their hearts were burning. Not the kind of heartburn you need antacids for like Alka-Seltzer or Prevacid. But later on, when they see who Jesus is, Jesus allows them to recognize him. He vanishes. And they're like, didn't our hearts burn? And they hightail it back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, yes, the, what the women said, and apparently Peter had also had a visitation. Jesus is alive. But with that incredible news, the disciples still did not believe. That's appearance number two until the third one. It's at this third one that Jesus shows up with the disciples in the room. But it says that Jesus rebuked the disciples for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they refused to believe those who had seen Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the words that he uses for the rebuke, it's a strong, vehement expression of disapproval because of their hardness of heart, because of their stubbornness to believe. And he basically says this hardness of heart, and the word there in the Greek is sclerocardia. We get the word sclerosis from that word. And sclerosis is a, a physiological condition, neurological as well, where there can be some fibrous tissues that grow in the place of other tissues that prevent a flow from, of blood or a flow, especially in neurology, of signals from the brain because of lesions or these kinds of plaques. These disciples were dealing with a kind of a spiritual sclerosis, a pathology of sclerosis. They had become so overwhelmed and preoccupied with their circumstances that the perception, their perception of reality had been hijacked rather than allowing themselves to fall completely in submission to the reality of the resurrection. They had a problem believing. And, and by the way, that actually works to validate their seeing Jesus because these men who were gathered together, they were in grief, they were mourning, they were fearful, they were anxious. Later on, about a month later, these men walked out as firebrands to proclaim the gospel to the point of offering their own lives. That's not what's going on here. We've got a situation where there are some heart condition here. There's a sclerosis, a hardening of their faith that Jesus is addressing. And folks, I get it. Sometimes we can be so overwhelmed by the circumstances of our life that it affects our perception of the reality that Christ has actually created for us, that Christ has established. We can be so dominated by guilt and shame and confusion we are looking at our world through eyes of brokenness and sclerocardia, hardening of our faith, hardening of our heart, that we can't really appropriate and access the amazing reality of what Christ has done. This past week, I had the, pr the privilege of being able to speak to one of my two favorite millennials on the planet, my daughter. 
And she and I were talking about this whole thing of resurrection, and she admitted, and this is by her permission, that for this last year, it's been really tough for her. Just the transitions, dealing with personal issues, medical, all that kind of stuff, you know, even though she's in, a, she's in a great place. And she basically said it just feels as if the, the life of Christ is just kind of being squeezed and oppressed. And I said, I get it. I, I understand. This has been a tough year for me and for many of you as well. We're in a place we never thought we would be, and right now we are dealing with all kinds of oppressions to our joy and to our spirit and to our hope. Many of you came into this new season already dealing with stuff, physiological, medical, marital, financial, and now with quarantine and what are we going to do with the kids and downsizing and furloughing and financial security and also the racial struggle that's going on in our nation and who knows what else. All of that stuff has so affected our perspective that the reality of resurrection has been eclipsed and we are seeing things through a narrow perspective to the point to where we are now, we are now at the mercy of pundits and philosophers and, and personalities and politicians who are giving us their view of the problem and their perspective of the answer. And it's just creating more and more confusion and hopelessness. And I fear that we are succumbing to practical atheism. As Christians, we are succumbing to practical atheism. Oswald uh, Sanders says this, Oswald Chambers, on denying the power. He says, beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme him by the complete evidence in your daily life that he is powerless to do anything in and through you. Guilty as charged. That sometimes the way that I address and approach my problems is from the perspective that Jesus really isn't available to transfer overcoming power to my life. Can I, can I, can I give you a, a reality check? There's one man. There's one man who predicted when he would die, how he would die, and that he rose again, and he did. This man came into the world at the lowest social rung, into a situation that was already oppressed. He chose that intentionally. He confronted all of the dysfunctions and the hostilities of humanity. He took upon himself the worst of humanity, the brutality of human evilness and wickedness. He bore on himself the sins of the entire world, the wrath of God, took all of that on himself, and he died. Nobody has that kind of perspective of the problems of the world better than Jesus. But then, in light of all that he went through, he physically rose from the dead. You want to talk about a person who has the answers for what's going on in our world, going on in, my, in our life, in my life, in your life? There's only one and that one was dead, and now he is alive. The scripture says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above 
every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Folks, there is no greater authority or source of life than Jesus Christ, and he is alive. When Christine and I had this conversation around that, about the resurrection, it was a turnaround for us. We realized, what, what have we been giving up? We follow the resurrected Savior, and he has given us the inheritance of victory through his power. And it did something, it shifted something in both of us to realize we have been living underneath all that we are and all that we have in Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm saying to you. Listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't listen to the other voices, but before any other voice, start with the voice and the calling and the leadership of the resurrected Jesus. <laughs> he defeated every evil in humanity and death and lives and leads to give us hope in the present. But sometimes we can be so grieved. Folks, I have been, I've been grieved by watching and seeing, and I've been there, brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord, and they are faithful, walking under cloud of guilt and shame and inadequacy. I want to remind you, and I want to remind me, we were set free from shame. We have no business walking around in what Jesus Christ liberated us from. Our destiny is different. Our destiny is higher because we have been placed with Christ in heavenly realms. That's the reality of the resurrection. And we should not settle for anything less than the fullness of all that God has given to us. I went to a devotional uh, earlier this week and it reminded us that you and I in Christ, that we are utensils, you know, stuff that actually produces things, but we are vessels. And it goes on to say, guess what we're supposed to contain as vessels? Guess what we're supposed to contain? God. We are to contain the presence and the power of God. So then Jesus, he comes to his disciples after he says, you know, you guys, you, you, you've got this, this, this sclerosis of the heart condition, unbelief, hardness of heart. So you know something? I can't hang with that. I'm going to go look for some other disciples because you guys have been disqualified. No, that's not what he says. He commissions them to his mission. Here's what he says. Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever's baptized, who believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. In other words, Jesus, even after he rebukes their hardness of heart, he doesn't disqualify them. He restores them to the same mission with a different energy signature because now the stakes are even greater. They're not just simply proclaiming a message but a reality of something that was impossible that has now been accomplished. And he says to these guys at this moment, he says to them, go into all the world and tell everybody, proclaim the news. About 40 days later, when the spirit would come down, these men would do just that with great boldness and with great courage. They would sacrifice their lives to see that message of the resurrected Jesus Christ spread so that people could also be connected to that kind of life. But here's the wonder, because that's what happened. That's, that's what they did. It says in verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere. Watch this. While the Lord worked 
with them and confirm the message by accompanying signs. The amazing thing is that Jesus didn't just go and leave and then sit down at the right hand of God and be disconnected. He is still living and leading and working with his disciples. With all who are committed to forwarding and promoting the kingdom of God, the presence of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ works with us. He has not abandoned us. And for any people seeking to make a difference in this world, seeking to experience that difference in their life through which the, the power of Jesus is released, you can be guaranteed that his presence remains with you. Power and presence of the resurrected Christ. So here's a challenge. Again, here's a challenge. No matter what, begin with the reality of the resurrection. Begin with the reality of the resurrection. Later on in one of his letters, Peter would say this in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It starts with the reality of the resurrected Christ who is living and who still leads. So can I say this? If you're here today, you're listening to this, and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've not yet placed your faith, and I plead with you, I implore you, confess your sin, confess your need, Tell him that you need him as Savior. Invite Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your, of your life with a belief in his death for your sins and his resurrection from the grave and ask for the power and the grace by the Spirit to submit your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord. In other words, I'm inviting you to receive the promise of the dynamic life that is in Jesus Christ. But for those of you who are followers, and maybe you've come to realize you're living beneath your inheritance. Reclaim the power of the resurrected Christ. Refuse to live with anything less than all that Jesus Christ has promised. You and I, we are citizens of a completely different, supreme, superior, powerful kingdom led by a powerful king. Submit yourself completely to his leadership. Listen, confess your sins. Confess your failures. Confess your shortcomings. Confess the places where you've not been following. And then receive his forgiveness. Receive his grace. And let's get on with it. And let's reclaim our place as the vessels through which the power of Jesus is released into the world. People want to know about, okay, that's all good. What's the next practical step? Here's the next practical step. Ask him. Ask him what he wants. He's leading. He's not silent. Look into his word. Search his word. Ask him. Let Jesus be the one to show us and to tell us what we should do. I've been discovering the fact that the scriptures, it's real clear about what we should be doing. There's no confusion. Jesus is leading. May you and I have the grace to follow. Tim Keller tells a story about a minister who went to Italy. And in Italy... 
he saw the tomb of a man who was a vehement atheist. He basically was a, didn't believe in the resurrection and was almost a kind of afraid of the resurrection to the point to where he arranged for his death to have a stone slab put on top of his grave. To base, and, and then there were insignias all over it to say, please do not raise me from the dead. I don't believe in it. Kind of silly. Turns out that before the tomb was closed, apparently an acorn fell into the grave and then covered up. A hundred years later, that acorn grew into a towering oak tree that split that stone slab. And the minister commented and said this, if an acorn that contains biological life can grow to the point to where it breaks and splits open a stone slab, then what would the acorn of the resurrection do in the heart and the life of a human being when it's allowed to be planted and grown. And that is the, that's the wonder of what we have. Tim Keller would go on to say, listen, when you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That it's gone to this paradigm-shattering historical event to now become something that that power continues to grow. The more you and I grow in our knowledge and our faithfulness and our love and our devotion to the resurrected Christ, the greater the power grows in us that we offer to this world the hope and the joy and the victory of dynamic life through Jesus Christ. And so my friends, I encourage you, as I am being encouraged myself, do not settle for anything left, less than what has been won for you. Begin, start with the resurrected reality of a resurrected Christ and let's get on with it. For his glory, in his world. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done, are doing, and will accomplish through Jesus in our life. Grant us the grace and the power to submit ourselves completely for your infilling and for you to restore your kingdom through our lives and in our heart, aiming at our hearts so that what happens on the outside of us is a byproduct of what you do in us. I pray today that you would reclaim souls and lives for your glory and for your purpose. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.